Well, National Hispanic Heritage Month is celebrated in the United States every September 15th through October 15th to recognize the contributions and influence of Hispanic Americans to the history, culture, and achievements of the United States. And today I have four distinguished Spartans with me to discuss Hispanic heritage here on MSU today, and I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves. And Francisco, why don't you start? My name is Francisco Villarruel. I came to Michigan State in 1988 from the University of Wisconsin. I currently serve as the acting director of the Julian Samora Research Institute, which is the Midwest's premier research center in the United States. A little bit of history, an important history that we'll come back to. It was our Tia Dorothy Gonzalez who helped launch this institute with the intent of developing a research institute that impacted communities, families, of Latino descent in Michigan in the Midwest. In its 30 years of existence, it has become the premier institute for Midwest issues. So we owe a lot of gratitude to Dorothy for her planting the seed, not only for the Samora Institute, but also for Chicano Latino studies and how it's advanced to its current state of affairs. Maria. Hello, my name is Maria Isabel Ayala Garcia, but I go by Isabel Ayala. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and I'm currently the director of Chicano Latino Studies, and my work focuses on Latinx higher education success. Luis. Uh, buenos dias, Luis Alonso Garcia. I'm the director of Migrant Student Services, which has a variety of programs, the College Assistance Migrant Program, the High School Equivalency Program, MSU uh, IDNR Center, Identification and Recruitment Center, and we operate the National Migrant Scholars Internship Initiative. Also, we have a sector in our uh, unit where we focus on international initiatives and also have, operate uh, a project called La Cosecha. Hi, my name is Deyanira Nevarez Martinez, and I am an assistant professor of urban and regional planning. Um, I started here at MSU in the fall of 2021, so I'm the newbie. And I, uh, my research focuses mostly on housing. I do um, work around the role of the state in what I call informal housing. Um, here in Michigan, my research has focused with farm workers, mostly in western Michigan, um, looking at their housing precarity and their interaction with the housing bureaucracy. What does Hispanic Heritage Month mean to you? What do you want us to be more aware of by celebrating it? Yeah, I, it's about the contributions that we have made to this country. Um, a lot of times, you know, when you're growing up and you're in your uh, civics classes or your history classes, we're not the focus of what we learn. And so um, I think it's really important to make sure that we have um, um, representation, but also know that a lot of times we're not the first ones. We just don't know what has been done in the past. And it's so important to make sure that we acknowledge, you know, that, that we have been here for a long time. In many cases, um, you know, we've all heard that, that saying, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Um, and so we've been in this place. We are from this place. And so acknowledging that, I think, is really important. Hispanic Heritage Month is really a, uh, a special time. But... Given the programs that I operate, uh, I operate working with the Hispanic Latino community on a daily basis. And uh, I was just reading an article this morning where many institutions uh, are increasing their Latino Hispanic representation 
and they're becoming HSIs. Uh, what is HSIs? Hispanic serving institutions. And as we, as time goes on, we're going to see those numbers continue, continuously increase. You know, oftentimes we look at these various communities and we think that uh, what are they bringing to the table? You know, we, we've been part of the machine that's been feeding America and people just quite don't understand that. And so contributors, absolutely, is recognizing our contributions to the community, but uh, we've only started. I think you've got great things to see uh, in years to come. So um, I agree with both the Janira and Luis's assessment. I think um, Hispanic Heritage Month is about celebration, right? It's about celebrating the contributions of Latinx folks throughout the United States, uh, a very diverse group, some of which were crossed by the border, some of which uh, recently arrived, uh, some of which um, have played, all of them have played a, a key role in what the United States is today. Um, and oftentimes, I think we we think of Hispanics or Latinx folks uh, in terms of music and food. But what this allows us to do, especially this month, but hopefully throughout the year, is recognize that we have folks contributing in science, in the arts, um, across, in politics, uh, in government, in higher education. Uh, and those in programs like mine, with Chicano Latino Studies, what we intend to do is offer the curriculum that is, speaks to this contribution um, so that students feel and see themselves represented and reflected, not only when they turn on MTV or Spotify, right? But they see themselves in, in, in the science that they learn, in the communities that they engage with, um, and, and, and feel proud, continue to feel proud. So just to build on what everybody has said, I think for me, this is a month where we begin to write the right history. And that may sound like an odd term, but I want to exemplify what everybody has said. There are STEM initiatives right now that are really trying to bring Latinos into the science and technology. We often think that the world's most accurate clock is the iWatch. But the world's most accurate clock is actually the Azteca calendar, where you can figure out where to plant. But most people don't have the literacy to understand how to read that calendar. I often say to some young folk, we talk about the wonders of the world, and the Egyptian pyramids are some wonders of the world. Absolutely. Does that mean that the Aztec, the Mayan, and the Incans were the rejects of the Egyptians? <laughs> it's, we have to use a little bit of humor, but when I say it's the time for us to write the right history, it's an opportunity for us, for us to claim not only our indigeneity, but also to recognize the contributions of multiple people. Go to the Detroit Institute of Art and look at the Diego Rivera murals. How many centuries, that was a century ago, and yet it is still prophetic to today. But we undervalue those contributions of some of our Latino relatives. But, Russ, I think I'd like to add, just to add to something that was said earlier. You know, oftentimes I get asked, uh, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm, I'm from Texas. And then they say, no, but where are you really from? And then I have to remind people, and then... When they pushed me a little bit, I, I, I pushed back and I said, I'm from, the, I'm from the Mexican territories, which is now the state of Texas. And, and, and it's always, I'm intrigued in terms of how people define their history because 
it's conveniently it's convenient oftentimes to forget other people's history and and what America is today and I and I think that this particular time of the year it provides us an option to talk about these things and recognizing folks that, that have been here before other people got into this country we're not foreigners and but we are part of the landscape you remind me of I've, I've had great conversations with uh, Jeff Ray and Julian Chambliss uh, from the College of Arts and Letters and about Black History Month and they were making it clear Black history is American history, and I think the same thing, Hispanic history is American history. And on that note, so we're all correct, could you explain the similarities and the differences between Hispanic, Latino, Chicano, Latinx? Because I think we all want to be correct, so could you explain that? So I, I think it's very important to recognize that identity is multi-level, right? That we have multiple identities. Um, when the the part of the reason why we really focus sometimes on Hispanic is because it was a term really developed uh, in the 1980s um, because of the growth of the, la the the population that was speaking Spanish. So the government was very interested in trying to begin measuring uh, some of the changes, uh, social demographic changes that were happening. So Hispanic is really much uh, a term that was imposed by the government at the time that really focused on the Spanish um, heritage uh, for folks that spoke Spanish. So the problem was that this was not something that really resonated with a lot of folks, especially from Latin America um, ancestry, especially because of coloniality. Uh, and um, it was resisted in that it was not inclusive enough, especially we know that in, in some countries in Latin America, uh, not everyone, or the Caribbean, not everybody speaks Spanish. So there was a push, uh, grass, um, a movement uh, that pushed for Latino. Uh, and Latino intended to recognize that Latin American her heritage tried to be more inclusive of those uh, folks that did not speak Spanish. The problem with Latino is that it is very male-centered. And thus, you had Latinas, uh, females, mm -hmm. uh, that push again that Latino term. And thus, we started having Latina Latino. However, you know, there's also different voices that are unaccounted for in this dichotomy. So now with the Latinx, what we're intending to do is to be more inclusive of those non-gender binary identities that are part within the group of, of Latinx folks. So what is the correct term? Uh, it depends who you ask. Uh, some folks will be uh, self-identify as Latinas and Latinx. Some folks, especially those that have a history of political activism, will self-identify as Chicano and uh, Latino. So it's it's a matter of, of asking, it's a matter to recognizing what drives people to self-identify in different ways and recognize that it's not something that is very static. It changes through time. So That's a great explanation. Yeah, if I, if I may add a little bit too, because um, Isabel kind of alluded to this, you know, it's kind of depend on who you ask, but then also it could depend on the day. Like I mostly always... Um, identify myself as a Chicana, but depending on what rooms I'm in, um, if I'm with other Latinos, and I, because I see Latino and Latinx also as a term of, you know, pan-ethnic solidarity, I am a Latina, and those mm -hmm. things can be true, you know, at the same time, and so um, I think it, it's also, a, like, like Isabel said, very, very fluid also within the person. Mm -hmm. I have an opportunity to travel a lot around the country, and uh because I deal with uh, 
students, parents, uh, and institutions, I oftentimes uh, focus on what they want to be called, not what, not my correct uh, approach, but because in some they will address us purely. We're the Chicano community or the Chicana community. Uh, some will say, "No, we're all Hispanic." I mean, so. Uh, you don't want to start on a negative with anybody as you're engaging in a conversation that, that could prove beneficial to, to both parties. So oftentimes it's, it's really respecting where people are at. You know. Russ, if I can build on what everybody has said and bring this to an example of why labels are so important and why identification is so important, the, my own research focuses on juvenile justice systems involvement and more particularly for Latino youth. Mm-hmm. In 2001, we produced the first ever national report on Latino youth involved in the justice system. And in 2007, we were doing a federal testimony. And one of the things that I pulled were the Florida data of adult prisoners. There were three names that that we pulled out, Francisco Sanchez, Javier Munoz, and um, Ruben Montemayor. When you looked at the state data, one was black, one was white, and one was Latino. And then if you think about it from their perspective or you think about it from a youth perspective, if they say they're Chicano, they're telling you something about their history and what's important. If they're telling you they're Mexicano, they're telling you something that's important about their history. If they're telling you they're Mexican-American, they're giving you some insight about them. So the self-expression of identity and the terms that are used, yes, they are fluent. Yes, they are fluid. But they are also rooted in history that we need to understand to better serve the communities that we serve across the state and that nation. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that Francisco brings up that is really very interesting because I think that uh, America's caught up in this uh, world of black and white. But for our community, uh, you know, I've had scenarios where someone comes up to one of our students and says, "Yeah, as uh, as African American and." The student is puzzled and just saying, African-American, no, I'm Latino. So it's really their point of reference that's really a driver for them, not the traditional, oh, just because you look like this. Because within our community, we are totally all shades. Mm -hmm. I mean, you name it, we are all shades. Uh, Luis, I would add to that. It's... We also have indigeneity. Oh, absolutely. It's not just bimodal black and white. We represent every color on the spectrum. When you look at Peru and you've got people from the Japan Japan nations, Guatemala, the indigenous communities, we represent the full spectrum. And oftentimes when we think about identity, it's it's true that many people self-identify just as their parents did or their grandparents did. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's so important um, to have access to curriculum that addresses these histories and allows people an exposure to the different origins to the terms and 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 learn in this process and learn not only that you know oftentimes we think well because i'm a latinx or i'm a mexicana or latina uh, i know everything there is to know about the group Uh, there's so much intra-group diversity and just as there is privilege and uh, marginalization outside of the group there's privilege and marginalization within the group and that can uh, materialize not only in 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 color uh, but also whether people speak 
speak Spanish or not, whether they're considered authentic Latinos or not because of, of how they see themselves. So I, I think not only in terms of Hispanic heritage, but in terms of curriculum and interacting with other folks is recognizing those differences, but also valuing those differences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think our students are sometimes grappling with some of these issues, too, just because so like I, me as a young person growing up on the U.S.-Mexico border for the majority of my life, I identified myself as Mexican, not Mexican-American, not Chicana. Um, but as I, you know, came into college and gained my own kind of, you know, academic identity and, and learned more about our history in the United States, um, I... I realized that I am a Chicana and that's what I choose to call myself. Um, but it's also a journey that, you know, we go on as we're trying to figure out who we are and kind of what our identity is and where we fit in this place. And so I think our students also grapple with some of these questions on what do I call myself? Who am I? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's uh, we have these forces at the same time that are pushing upon us. You know, we recruit for my programs, uh, migrant and seasonal farm worker. And historically, the two groups that we bought in are Latinos, Latinx, and, and Haitians uh, proportionately out of Florida. But what we're starting to see is that uh, an increased number of uh, students from indigenous communities from, from Mexico, their first language is not Spanish, it's their own indigenous language. And I think it's, it's really challenging us because it's forcing us to really rethink the identities of communities. And I think it forces, and I've been talking to some of my uh, U.S. Native uh, community members, and I said, can you help me? And how do we engage in this conversation that historically We've looked at boundaries relative to indigenous communities, but, but were not the indigenous communities able to move within unidentified borders? You know, so it really opens up some interesting conversations. We're discussing Hispanic Heritage Month on this episode of MSU Today. And Luis, let's stay with you. Tell me a little bit more about migrant services, what you do. You know, I've been here at the university for a few years, 30-something uh, years. But anyways, when uh, back over 22 years ago, one of the things as I looked around, um, I, and we look at the Hispanic community, there was one pocket of that community that was really not served. And back then, Dorothy, former uh, trustee Dorothy Gonzalez, would also prod me and just saying, Luis, what are you doing? What are you going to do? What, how can we focus on uh, the, our migrant community? Because if we look at the history in Michigan of, uh, of our Hispanic community, you will find that the greater percentage of them all have roots really that are tied to migratory labor, farm workers. That's how their families came to Michigan. And so that's when we started back 20 years ago with the camp, and uh, thereof, we started to add additional programs. Uh, and now uh, I humbly can say that I, I think we're a national leader and really uh, diving into and providing service unlike no other institution in the country. And, you know, at, at the same time, we the universities in a search process for the new dean of, uh, of the College of Agriculture. 
I, I think that this is a, a wonderful time for us to be at to begin to integrate some of the, the, the work that we've done to this new uh, direction for the College of Agriculture as well, as well and uh, the multi-billion dollar industry of agriculture in Michigan. I just want to build on two things that Louis said and to give him a shout out. Many of the MSU community know about the Featherstone Society and the Featherstone Prize, which honors the undergraduate, the, the most outstanding undergraduate in the university. Two students from camp have received that award. And many people in this institution will always say the camp students are not the same caliber. That This is an example of how when we give opportunities yeah. and we support the talent that comes to MSU, we can foster their development. Both Luis and I have mentioned Theodorothy Gonzalez, and I think it's most important for us to recognize in Hispanic Heritage Month that since it was established in 1855, Dorothy has been the only Latino who served on the Board of Trustees. Yep. And it is because of her legacy and her footprint that we are where we are at today. She pushed Luis to establish camp. She facilitated the finding, the founding of the Samora Institute. She helped lay the foundation for the Chicano Latino Studies program. She really is an ancestor, a tia for all of us that we have to honor and we cannot forget her legacy. So glad you said that. And tell us the acronym CAMP, though. Explain. Uh, give us the... CAMP stands for the College Assistance Migrant Scholars Program. There you go. And... And Francisco, let's stay with you. Tell us, same question, Huli and Samora Research Institute, sort of the evolution and mission. Um, so Julian Samora was a researcher in the 1950s, 1960s, who was the first person who began to write about and do research on Latinos in the Midwest. He was on the faculty at Michigan State for approximately two years before going to Notre Dame, where he got a number of federal grants to support scholar development the number of scholars that he had placed in international global contexts as well as in the United States is a history that is unprecedented. Nobody has ever been able to match that. So in with the efforts of Dorothy Gonzalez, Richard Navarro, many other people, the Samora Institute was founded in his honor to really push Michigan State and the country to focus on Latino scholarship in the Midwest. And what's most important is when it was established in 1989, it was the only institute in the Midwest that was dedicated to the scholarship of Latino communities with an, with an emphasis of not doing research on communities, but doing with communities to help build opportunities for success. And this is 25 years for the Chicano Latino Studies program at MSU. Again, sort of the mission, the evolution, what's ahead? So um, I think when we look at institutions of higher education, um, primarily white institutions, we see that they have an eurocentric foundation. That means that they tend to focus and represent and normalize the the history, the stories, the the contributions of white folks. Um, and yet we have seen from what everybody has mentioned that there are people that have played a key role in creating spaces where um, folks are represented. So Chicano Latino Studies emerged in 1997 as a specialization for minors. Um, eventually became a minor. Um, but we also offer, in addition to that undergraduate degree, uh, we offer, um, we have a graduate program 
that has a graduate certificate, a standalone CLS PhD, the only one in the Midwest, and a dual major PhD. Uh, I am very proud to say that we're um, currently the largest ethnic minority um, minor at MSU, but also across Big Ten universities. We have also seen that students that minor in CLS not only have the uh, higher GPAs, but also shorter time to degrees. Um, and we have faculty and students across the university. So from the College of Social Science to Arts and Letters to Education, all in between. So the conversations um, and the, the research, the curriculum that, that is offered is truly interdisciplinary. And we have faculty not only across the board, but we also have folks that have made an impact in at MSU, such as Diana Rivera, who developed the Cesar Chavez collection. Um, so it, it's very important, I think, that we create those spaces where the only curriculum offering uh, Latinx unit uh, on campus, uh, but as you see, we're reflected all across, um, all across that place. I would like to add that, you know, uh, a little bit piece of history. I was here when uh, Chicano studies commenced, but, uh, but it it was really born out of the interests of a group called Mecha, a student group that were very, very much focused on getting the university's attention uh, to commence uh, the Chicano Studies Initiative. And, and we have to give them credit because they were bold, they were relentless, and that was really the birthing of Chicano Latino Studies. And you're the newest member of our group. What attracted you to MSU, and how do you roll in urban and regional planning into that? Yeah, so it's really interesting, and, and I'm so grateful to hear all of the history behind these three programs because a lot of what drew me to MSU were actually these programs. Um, I had some personal connections to Michigan. My sister um, did her Ph.D. at a university that's about an hour that way, <laughs> where they wear blue. <laughs> um, and so she was here for five years. I knew that Michigan was beautiful. I grew up as the daughter of farm workers, and I had friends who um, lived part of the year in California where I lived that were uh, usually did the um, Michigan-Texas route. But as you know, the migratory routes cross they lots cross. of times. Mm -hmm. We, um, my, my family did the California, Arizona route. And so I also knew that there were, that we were in the Midwest and that, that I would find community. And so when I was on the job market, um, even though I had multiple offers, I decided that I would come here. Um, my, <laughs> my, uh, I, I'm privileged in that my husband, based on where, where he's in his career, he said, we'll go wherever you want to go. And so we, we decided to take a shot and come, come to Michigan and my children are very quickly becoming Michiganders. <laughs> they already bleed green and white. Um, but in my, uh, in my cover letter where when I applied to my job here at MSU, I wrote in that uh, letter about all three of these programs. I knew that I wanted to go to a place that had a strong uh, Chicano Latino Studies program because I wanted to, to hopefully teach in that program and, and be affiliated. And the camp program, um, to me, that was really important because I wanted to make sure that I had the opportunity to, to 
have an effect and, and mentor students that were like me because a lot of mm-hmm. times in in higher education I haven't had that mm-hmm. and so um, I see it as a responsibility because I, I, I maybe know some of the hardships that, that some of our students are going through and, and maybe could help in that way um, and doing research that is hopefully important and impactful to our community and I saw the Julian Samora Research Institute is really a place that could help me do that um, especially since I knew that I wanted to kind of um, do research with farm workers and, and their housing issues. House, housing is really my expertise. And, and growing up in a migrant camp myself, I know some of the issues that can be that can happen, uh, some of the substandard housing issues that people are dealing with and some of the issues that come along with when your employer provides your housing. And so I really wanted to explore some of those things, and I knew that this would be a place that um, I would have you know, the resources that I need, the mentorship that I need. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, took a, a, a jump and uh, I left Aslan and I, now I'm in the Midwest. <laughs> um, can, can I add something? I, I, I really want to, um, you know, center what uh, Deja just mentioned. Oftentimes, you know, in our conversation, we've talked about representation and seeing students reflected in faculty and staff, I think is, is crucial. But it's also very important to recognize that we come with knowledge that hasn't been uh, part of the fabric of the universities. So what happens when you have not only faculty and staff uh, in these positions and across the university in leadership positions, it's not only that they see the, the students see themselves reflected, which is a very big part, but it's also the questions that we bring, the knowledge that we bring, the, the questions that haven't really been asked by other folks because they don't have that knowledge and that history. Um, it, and, and another point that Francisco was making is also doing research uh, with communities. Oftentimes uh, in higher education, we view knowledge as something that is only acquired through formal, formal education. And the reality is that there's knowledge all around us, from farm workers to communities to uh, scientists all over the world um, and recognizing that, yes, there's a certain knowledge that is acquired through formal education, but that also complements and builds upon the knowledge that has um, been acquired through live experiences is very important. And I think that's something that not only is shared, a view of of understanding these live experiences as critical not only are not only shared among Latinx faculty and staff, but uh, other groups, Asian American, Native uh, yeah. Indigenous, African American, uh, and 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 those. That's why it's so important to really have an institutional commitment because everyone in this table and and a lot of folks outside of this space uh, are doing a lot of that invisible service that that involves addressing some of the ne- unique needs of these populations and yet continues to be um, not recognized or acknowledged. So it's wonderful that we have people truly commit- committed to making a change and advancing other folks of color, but we need the support of institutions. Um, we have these structures in place, but they need also the support of the institution to to not only make it, but really thrive and continue to do wonderful work. We spent a lot of time today talking about the migrant communities, and that certainly is an important component of what we all do. But we also work in urban environments. If we look at some of the community-based centers throughout the state of Michigan, 
Cristo Rey in Lansing, the Detroit mm-hmm. Hispanic Development Corporation, the Hispanic Community Center in Grand Rapids. If you look at uh, Southwest Detroit and Mexican Town, which was thriving during the recession because of the cottage-based industries, we have as much to learn from these communities and the mm-hmm. resilience of our communities and our people who are rooted in this state. If you think about World War One and World War Two, how did what, how were the automotive plants supported that led to supplying the war? They brought Mexicanos to staff those facilities. Mm-hmm. So to deny our history, and I go back to the comment that this is our opportunity to write the right history, when we take the chance to learn with and from communities, we can transform this knowledge to our students who be- can become leaders, not only in working with the communities, but in state policy development, implementation, and evaluation. I would like to to add that that oftentimes our our society doesn't really see what's going on, but yet it's right in front of in front of us. Um, I travel a lot, so I travel a lot out of Detroit, and because I'm I'm a Latino, I oftentimes uh, get asked, of, "Oh, are you one of the, are you one of the engineers?" I said, "No." Mm-hmm. And what what. What happens in the auto industry uh, in greater Detroit, there's a flow of engineers between Mexico City and Detroit. And I'm not talking two or three. I'm talking extremely significant numbers. And there's the backbone of many of uh, of the engineering activities in the auto industry is coming out of Mexico City. And and folks just don't realize that 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 we have a relationship with Mexico in ways that we never uh, thought of. Well, this has been a very thought-provoking and fascinating conversation to me. And as I as we wrap up, let me just ask you each to kind of reflect again on his National Hispanic Heritage Month, what it means to you, and and what you hope we're all more aware of by acknowledging it, Luis. Yeah, I, I would like to add. You know, uh, every time the university changes leadership, uh, I get nervous. Because I'm wondering, is this next leader going to understand, be supportive, as Isabel said, of these initiatives? And uh, we're fortunate to have uh, President Stanley, who um, has been been there uh, and su- very supportive of the diverse communities and is willing to take the heat on that as we cultivate a further understanding uh, of the broader community of the contributions that these communities have had, will continue, but for our existence, future existence, they will be a vital component. I I would just add to what Luis has said. It's not only the president, but it's also the Provost Woodruff and Vice President Bennett. This is an administration in the 35 years that Luis, you and I have been here, that I can comfortably say that we have leadership who are not gonna help just sustain but are committed to investing, promoting, and enhancing what we have at this institution, not only for the institutional sake, but for the communities across the state and the Midwest, and more importantly, for student success. I think it's also um, an opportunity to give a shout out to all those invisible forces and very visible forces uh, across the students, staff, faculty, uh, leadership uh, across MSU that um, 
not only celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month in September and October, but throughout the year and do the work every day, uh, the visible and the invisible, um, and bring everyone with them. Yeah, to me, I think uh, this time of year is an opportunity to make sure that we're um, doing the work to make sure that students uh, let the Latinx students know that they belong here. Um, To me, it's really important um, that they understand that. I, I was just talking, we were talking in class a couple of days ago about walls. And so we were talking about walls that exist and some that may not be there but are there and so we were talking about probably that Chicano uh, student that lives in Lansing and probably has never set foot on the uh, the Michigan State University Mm -hmm. campus because there is that invisible barrier sometimes around Mm -hmm. this institution and so um, to me I think that my goal for this month and every month of the year is trying to make sure that that our community knows that they belong here. Well, well, thank you all for this great conversation today. And again, National Hispanic Heritage Month is celebrated every September 15th through October 15th to recognize the contributions and influence of Hispanic Americans to the history, culture, and achievements of the United States. And I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.